Well, take your Bibles, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 15. We start a new chapter today. Very excited about Acts 15. Uh, we, you heard a lot in that scripture that was read to you about food. You would walk away thinking this sermon is going to be about food. No, it's not at all. It's about the food was simply the analogy. It's about as brothers and sisters in Christ, not trying to force others into our practices of, of sanctification or even salvation, that we think this is how salvation is to happen or to occur, and we push it upon someone else when it doesn't have a biblical root. Or after they're saved, we kind of get caught up in a particular lifestyle as a believer. Maybe you are someone who thinks, well, we shouldn't do anything on the Sabbath. We should rest on the Sabbath. And you look down upon people who actually do things, work, whatever, on the Sabbath. This passage that was read is telling us, don't undo the work of the Lord for your practices. You are not to try and make someone else carry the yoke that you have put upon yourself. You say, well, what yoke is there in, in keeping Sabbath? It, not, there's no yoke in keeping Sabbath if you're not doing it legalistically, if you're not doing it thinking it contributes to your salvation or to your good standing with God. It's only a yoke when those things that you do, you think contribute somehow to your relationship with Him. And so we're going to look today at a portion of Scripture. I'm not sure that we'll get into all of what I just said. That's kind of later in the message, and we're running a little later on time, so I want to kind of stick to another portion, the first portion of the chapter. And we're going to be looking at uh, an issue, a very serious matter that came up in the early church. And so uh, let's pray. Father, again, we just right now in the moment lift up Brother George Libanotti and his wife Phyllis as they are at the hospital. We pray that the hands and the care of the physicians would be perfect and that they would uh, realize what's happening and it would be resolved. We pray it in Jesus' name. And Lord, also that in this time together, the short time we have with this teaching, that we would be able to really apply it to our lives. The Word does no good when we simply carry it as knowledge. It only does good when it moves from the head to the heart, and we begin to live it. And may that happen today in Jesus' name. Amen. At the turn of the 20th century, a train was bound from Chicago to St. Louis. There was a heavy snowstorm, and along the way there were many stops. At one of the stops, a woman and two small children boarded the train. She said to the conductor, please, sir, I need to get off at the station in Beaumont. The man said to the woman sitting behind her, I think the conductor's pretty busy, but I've traveled this route hundreds of times. I will tell you when we arrive at your destination. That comforted her. And so she and her two children fell asleep. Well, Several hours later, the train decelerated and came to a stop, and the man leaned over and nudged the woman that they had arrived at their, their destination. She woke her two little ones and headed out into the heavy snow. 
A half hour later, the conductor appeared and asked where the woman was who needed to exit in Beaumont. The conductor was asking because they had just arrived there. And the man who told her to get off 30 minutes earlier was horrified. He said, what do you mean? Beaumont was the last stop. And the conductor said, no, no. We simply stopped for getting water out of a tanker. There's nothing where we stopped. And they both realized that this woman and her two children died in a heavy blizzard or storm. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This man took it upon himself to inform this woman of the solution to her problem, getting off at the right stop. He was not a good teacher, and she and her children suffered because of it. This is exactly what we're going to see happen here in chapter 15. If you look at verse 1 with me, it says, but some men, recognize some, not a lot, a few, they came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these men, Paul and Barnabas and some of, some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Let me just make this statement about what we just read. They are in a place called Antioch. It's in Syria, which is several days north of Jerusalem. And it says that these men came down from Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. Judea is south of Antioch. Why would they actually say these men came down when they actually went up? Because throughout the Gospels, throughout the epistles that Paul wrote, this idea of coming down from Jerusalem is spoken because Jerusalem is actually, uh, the, the temple is built on the temple mount. And Jerusalem is elevated. It's higher than Antioch. And so whenever you hear in the Bible it say they came down from or they're going up to, it has nothing to do necessarily with uh, direction. It has to do with altitude. They're going up to Jerusalem, okay, which is the holy city, by the way, Mount Zion. Okay? So here we see that these men come down, a few men from Judea, and they're pushing this idea that you don't get saved by grace alone. You, you have to do some things. You have to practice Judaism. Okay? Now, it says that Paul and Barnabas went down to Jerusalem. They were sent by the church in Antioch to go and have a discussion with the elders and the apostles and disciples that were in the church in Jerusalem. This council at Jerusalem addressed this most important question, and the question is, what must a person do to be saved? 
at this special gathering that's going to take place, they will successfully resist the pressure to impose Jewish legalism and rituals on Gentile believers. These men came up from Judea. They were Jewish. They practiced Judaism. They were in the law. It does not say that they were saved. And so we are left to believe that these men are actually false teachers. And they're coming up. You have false teachers, wolves, who are now traveling outside of the city, the holy city, to go to all these spots where Christians are being saved by the grace of God. And these Christians are Gentiles. They're not Jews. They don't practice Judaism. And these men are going into the churches and they're saying, you do know that you have to be a Jew first. You convert to Judaism in order to be saved. Then you're able to be saved. So they're literally denouncing, they are reducing the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to be less than their works of following certain rituals and procedures in Judaism. This was a great concern, and it was sweeping through the church. And so Paul and Barnabas joined with Peter and James and, and other Christian leaders and elders in Jerusalem to make a discussion of this and to then make a stance to stand on truth of what they have experienced with Jesus Christ and with salvation. And so we see that they are now going to meet. Uh, these, these Jews, they saw, they saw Christianity as a culmination of Judaism. It wasn't enough to be a Christian. You had to be a Jew first. Uh, you, you, you Gentiles, you're short-circuiting the process. When they looked and they would see and they would hear about all the, Paul and Barnabas, all the, the people, the Gentiles who were being saved as they made their first missionary journey. And again, let me just say for those who might not understand who are here today, a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. And so they're, they're, Paul and Barnabas are excited. All these folks are getting saved. And, the, and these Jews are getting fed up and tired of it. Here, we've been bearing the weight of this yoke of Judaism, and you guys are just getting saved and being set free. That's not right. You've got to go through what we've gone through. Sound like anything in your life? People that you get around and you got to follow their procedures. You go to a new job, you're so excited to have the job, and you go out and you work hard, and somebody comes up to you after a couple days of that, and they say, hey, you need to slow down. You're making the rest of us look bad. Here's how we do this here in this place. You need to get in line. And that's what these guys are doing. You haven't paid the price of living by the law of Moses and the rituals that come with it. You don't deserve salvation yet. You need to do more things. Is it possible that some of us have put some of these yokes on others in our day? It's not enough to be saved by grace through faith. You got to walk through these hoops, jump through these right here. What would some of those hoops look like? You got to dress a certain way when you come to church. People aren't going to know you're saved the way you dress. As if clothing 
made you a Christian. You got to attend every week. Some of you folks get saved and I don't see in church every week and I don't understand what's going on and we measure out, we judge. Why? Because we're going to church every week. We're making the sacrifice when we don't feel like it to be there. But it's not your place to measure somebody's sanctification process. We're all in a different place. Amen? That's not an excuse for us not to be faithful to the house of God. The Bible says don't forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. So the Bible actually says you should go, but not as part of your salvation experience or not as part of your sanctification, your onward process in, in, as, as a believer. Don't put that on people. You, you, you only eat certain foods. Well, I don't know how, why they call themselves a Christian the way they eat. We, we laugh when we hear that, but you know what? Those kind of thoughts enter the mind. How can that guy be right with God the way he looks? This is exactly what they gathered in Jerusalem to discuss was what does it really require of someone to be saved? And the answer is pretty simple. Nothing. You don't do anything to contribute to your salvation. Only thing you can do is stick your arms up. Lord, I surrender. Thank you for calling me. Thank you for sharing the gospel with me. Thank you for letting me understand it. Thank you for giving me the faith to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And today I, by faith, believe and receive him as my Savior. Praise God. I confess my sin. I'm, I'm just, you did nothing for salvation except believe in the one who did everything for salvation. Amen? Peter wrote about this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Well, we have false teachers today who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. You see that? Every heresy is destructive. When, they present a, when, they, when a false teacher presents a heresy, he doesn't write above it on a sign, I'm going to share heresy today, come and hear it. Nobody would show up. They present it as truth. Have you ever had somebody say to you, you know, I know you're saved, but uh, have you ever really thought about practicing the Jewish feasts? How beautiful they are? You need to do that. You ought to try that. It starts with you trying to practice the Passover and Pentecost and the, and the, the Feast of Tabernacle in the fall. And, and ne next thing is, have you ever thought about maybe referring to Jesus as Yeshua instead of Jesus? Because you do know that the New Testament was written in the Greek, and the Greek culture was not saved. They were weird people. And so, weirdly, you should probably refer back to the Hebrew. His Hebrew name is Yeshua. And that's who you ought to pray to. And then before long, are you, are you practicing the Sabbath? Oh, how important it is that we take time to rest, as God said. You really need to do that. Well, yeah, God wants us to rest, but the Bible says Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus is with you all the time. You could rest any time in Christ. It's not bound to a one day a week. I can rest even when I'm 
doing something on a vacation. I can take a moment, get away from the kids, go off on the mountainside and just sit down and rest and receive and enjoy the presence of God. Amen? These things are being spoken today in our day by, by Christians. And let me tell you what it is. It's heresy. Now, it's not heresy if you have a desire to know more about Judaism because Jesus came from the Jews. So to understand the Old Testament is a good thing. But when all of a sudden you've got to put more emphasis on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the law of God than the New Testament freedoms in Christ, you have crossed over into heresy. Jesus never called us to try and fulfill the law. What he said was, you can't fulfill the law. He said, I am the fulfillment of the law. I did that, not you. So you put your focus on me. Where the Old Testament gives us the law, which is supposed to point us to Christ. The Old Testament is the shadow of Christ. The New Testament is the substance of Christ. We actually see him, experience what he said. We find that our hope, our salvation is not in Old Testament rituals. It's in Jesus himself and what he has done. What I just described to you when I talked about ways that people had you jump through hoops, that's called the Jewish Roots Movement or the Hebrew Roots Movement. And believe me, it is real and it's in Vero Beach, Florida. And some of you know friends who are in it. And I'm trying to give you as a shepherd one of the shepherds of this flock, it doesn't matter which elder would be standing before you giving this teaching, every one of them would say the same thing. We are trying to be good shepherds and we're trying to, to warn you what to look for when a wolf comes, when a false teaching, somebody who's a Christian, but their teaching is false. We're going to see that in the text. Because while they're up in Antioch, the men who came were not saved. These were, false, these were wolves. And it says that, that Paul and Barnabas, they defended the, the flock in Antioch. And then when they went down to Jerusalem, another group, Pharisees, who were converted, but had a really hard time with after conversion, seeing Gentiles not walk in the Jewish ways. They were saved but they were pushing something else on people that the New Testament does not push. That's what you see today in Jewish Roots Movement. Be very careful. Be very careful. Paul warned the elders at Ephesus. He said in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And that's what a false teacher does. They twist the truth. They, they share it in such a way it sounds believable. But if you don't know the word of God, you'd never recognize how twisted it really is. I'm surprised at the number of Christians that are in our churches today who don't know the word of God. 
who've never applied the Bible, Bible reading and Bible study. And there are, there are many churches today that do not teach verse by verse. So those people are not receiving a steady diet of the Word of God in their teaching. And so when these false teachers or when these, these heretics come along and they misconstrue and they twist the truth, many Christians today don't recognize it and they're like, I don't, what's wrong with that? What's, what's wrong? All they're trying to do is just you know, practice something that means a lot to them. It, it doesn't seem to be a problem. Well, it was such a big problem that they met in Jerusalem as the leaders of the early church and made a definitive statement that it was a problem. And so that's what we're dealing with here. Verse 4, And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. This is Paul and Barnabas, because they've just finished their first missionary journey. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the difference, again, between these guys and the ones that went up to Antioch, the ones in Antioch came right out and said, you can't get saved unless you practice Judaism. So they're false, they're wolves. These guys are saying, okay, they're saved. Because look what it says back in verse, uh, back in verse 5. But some believers who belong to the, Pharis the Pharisaical uh, sect, so these are Christians, but now they're just wanting people to live a certain way after they're saved. You need to be like a Jew. You've got to be like a Jew. If you're not going to practice Judaism, you really don't have the wholeness of what God wants you to have. So, 1 Corinthians 9.21 says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. That sounds very confusing. Paul said it, but here's what it means, basically, is this. They were genuine Christians, but had not yet realized the liberating truth that the ceremonial and ritual shadows of the Old Covenant had passed on to them, and now were gone, had, been, had passed away. No longer was Christ requiring us to practice Judaism. If you remember when Jesus met with his disciples right before he was hauled away and put to the cross, he met in the upper room and they had, what did they do first and foremost? They had the Seder meal, the Passover meal. The full Passover. They followed and practiced Judaism. That's what the disciples had always practiced. They knew that. That's what they practiced. Jesus, too, he followed, he gave them the, the traditional Passover meal. And then it says, and after they had finished eating, he got rid of Judas. He said, you can leave now because you're the betrayer. And then he said, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And this new covenant will be in my blood where the Passover meal symbolized for the Jews how God provided for the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. That's essentially what that meal is about, how God allowed the death angel to pass over the homes that the blood of the lamb, of a little lamb was put over the doorpost, the lentil. 
and how God spared the Jews and took them out of bondage of sin in Egypt. That's what Egypt is. It's a symbol for a bondage to sin. God carried them across the wilderness and they made it into the promised land. That's what the Jews do every, every, every uh, Passover. They're remembering what God has done. Listen now. Past tense. It's a ritual. They're not practicing the Passover because today they have placed their absolute trust in God. They're trusting in a ritual. They're remembering the past. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to give you a new covenant. We just practiced the old, but now a new covenant is about to happen. I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to pour out my blood. I'm going to be sacrificed. I'm going to become the Passover lamb once for all. And he showed them by taking the bread and break, giving thanks for it, break, breaking it and distributing it to his disciples. Take and eat. This is my body. I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb. And then he said, take this cup. It was a cup rep representing his blood. A cup representing a new covenant with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He had not died. He was giving them a picture of what it would look like to practice the Lord's Supper after he's gone. No longer would you be required to have a Seder meal, a Passover meal. That now is illegitimate. For you and I as believers, the Passover meal, the Seder meal is illegitimate. That does not mean that you as a, a Christian should not practice the Passover meal. I think it's kind of neat to do it every once in a while, to know the heritage, the history of the Jews. Nothing wrong with that. Don't place your emphasis, your thought, your, your salvation on an Old Testament practice. The new covenant is the Lord's Supper where you remember what Jesus, the Passover lamb, did for you. The Bible says in Revelation when John, God pulled back the curtains of heaven and showed John uh, what heaven looked like after the millennial or after the, uh, the, the rapture. And he sees the scroll that cannot be opened by anyone. And John just falls down and begins to weep uncontrollably because nobody was allowed to open the scroll. They weren't good enough. They weren't righteous enough to open the scroll. And one of the elders tapped him and said, hey, get up, get up. There's someone. And he pointed. And John said, I saw a lamb coming over. It was a slain lamb. This lamb actually had blood on it. And that lamb opened that scroll. That lamb was able to pay the full price for my sins and your sins to give us an, inher an inheritance in Christ Jesus. An inheritance that you will have for all eternity. Don't let anybody put you under a slavery to any work on this side of glory.
There is none. You're set free. The Bible even says the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. You're free. And what I'd love to develop for you today is this teaching on what it means to be free. That because you're set free by Christ, really, you're not bound by anything. But not everything that you're permit that you've been given permission to do is profitable as a believer so one christian might say well i can do this because i'm free christ set me free i've got my ticket to heaven no you're taking advantage of the christ of the work of christ on the cross and and, and the reality is you you have forgotten the price that was paid for you and now you are his you are his disciple you follow him. So while I might be free to do a lot of different things, many things I don't do. Why? Next week we're going to unpack that. One good reason that I don't do everything that I'm free to do as a Christian is for how it affects others around me. I'm free as a believer to, you know, go out and you know, have some wine at a, at a meal. There's nothing wrong with that. There really isn't. Bible doesn't speak against drinking wine. It doesn't speak, speak against that. It speaks against getting inebriated. You're not to get drunk on wine. You're going to get drunk. You say, well, I want to get drunk. Okay, good. Get drunk on the Holy Spirit. That's the one spirit you're allowed to get drunk on in the Bible. But, but the Bible doesn't say I can't have wine. May I tell you why I wouldn't drink wine? especially in public because i don't want to see a believer sitting over here at the restaurant who has fought through their life to overcome alcoholism and they are now sober and they look over and they see their pastor enjoying wine let me tell you what it's not worth it for me and that's what paul was saying in corinthians in the letter that helen read to us don't undo the work of the Lord for a chunk of meat. Don't undo the work of the Lord for a beer. That doesn't mean you can't have an alcoholic beverage. It's not what we're talking about. But you're careful where and how you would partake in that. If you're doing it to get a high, to get a buzz, stop it. You're never to lose your full faculty in Christ. He's the one who gets you through things, not alcohol. If you're doing it in public freely and not paying attention to the people sitting around you and how it might affect them, you need to stop. Because what you're doing is you're possibly causing a brother or a sister to stumble who's weaker. You say, well, I can't help if they're weak. Paul said, yes, you can. If you go into somebody's home and they don't serve wine, you don't say, hey, do you got any wine? You drink what they put before you. Make sense? And when they come to your home, you want to know whether they drink wine or not because you don't want to offend them. You, all you got to do is ask. And you, you're just careful. You see what I'm saying about being careful? We consider others more important than ourselves. This is Christian liberty at its best. While everything is permissible, not everything is profitable. 
I need to be careful. Constantly being mindful. Amen? Now, I just took one area, and that is wine. I didn't single that out because that's the one issue. Believe me, it can be an issue over anything. Looking down upon Christians who don't work out like you do. Well, I, you know, I get it. I don't, and you go off on all your stuff you do. That's great. They shouldn't look, on, look down on you for doing it. And you shouldn't look down on them for not doing it. Okay? We have liberty in Christ. Yeah, that's a good thing. But Christ is the one who leads each of us individually. Amen? We're going to, let's unpack that next week. I don't want to do it this week. There's just too much in it, and I think it's going to hit close to home for all of us in some way, shape, or form. I think the Holy Spirit is going to use the truth of the Word to really address us. You might want to invite a friend to come next week, uh, somebody that you know is a believer, but maybe they're not walking with the Lord at this time, or they are, but they're, they're, they're maybe going a little too far with the liberties that they have in Christ. And so feel free to bring them, okay? Let's, uh, let's close our time in prayer. And I want to thank you again for being here today. And I want to say that we have a prayer team and we have elders who will come and stand up front and they would gladly pray with you about any matter in your life. And uh, if you are here this morning and you are saying you, you, you talked about being saved, I don't know what being saved means. To be saved, it's being saved from your sins. And you might be now measuring yourself, am I really a sinner? Because I'm a pretty good person. The Bible says every person is a sinner. Everybody. And everybody falls short of God's glory. In other words, you'll never be good enough to stand before God in your own self-righteousness. You're going to have to at some point confess and admit that you're a sinner and repent. That means to think differently about your sins and to turn from them. And, and receive Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that I described, who went to the cross to, taking on your sin. That's why Jesus went to the cross, to take on your sin and my sin. And God put him to death on the cross. God did. Because the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay. Jesus said, I'll pay for everybody. And so he goes to the cross, he dies. So that if you would see Jesus as the Son of God who died for you, and you would place your faith in him, confessing that you're a sinner and placing your faith in him as a Savior, the Bible says, thou shalt be saved. That can happen today, right now. Just do it. Trust him. Come forward. Talk to somebody. Let them know that I just received Jesus Christ. I believed in him as the son of God. I confess that I'm a sinner. And here's what happens when you do that. You immediately are forgiven of all your sins. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. Father, today we want to thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the teaching of the word. I thank you, and Lord, how important it is that we teach accurately the word, that we not lead somebody into destruction like this man did, this woman on the train. God, we take serious the Bible. We're very careful what we share from the pulpit because we never want to dishonor your name. We want people to know you better, to know you more, 
to know you as fully as they can on this side of glory, just as we, the teachers, need the same. We never stop being taught. That's why we're allowed to be teachers. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just be with those today who are suffering and hurting over the Memorial Day weekend. I pray that you'd be with those who will be getting together as family because Memorial Day is a holiday and families will gather and they'll have picnics and many people will be on the highways. We pray for safety for people. And most of all, we pray for salvation for the lost. We pray for salvation. Give us opportunities to share this Memorial Day weekend with someone who gave the greatest price, the ultimate sacrifice was Jesus Christ on the cross for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless each of you. Come back next week. Let's get back in the Word.